Welcome to Murder Most Foul, a podcast devoted to exploring famous murder cases of our time. Some solved, some unsolved, but all fascinating and guaranteed to raise the hairs on the back of your neck. I'm your host, Jim Solonowski. Today's episode... Trial by Fire. Another nightclub tragedy. Fireworks set this Rhode Island club ablaze. People are running out on fire. Probably the worst thing I've ever seen in my life. Scores are killed. It is one of the deadliest nightclub fires in U.S. history. Also tonight... On February 20th, 2003, the Station Nightclub in West Warwick, Rhode Island, caught fire during a concert by the band Great White. Stage fireworks set off by the band quickly ignited flammable foam on the walls. Within 90 seconds, the club was a blazing inferno. Anyone who did not escape by then perished in the most horrific way. In October of 2020, Emmy Award-winning journalist and author Scott James published his book, Trial by Fire, a devastating tragedy, 100 lives lost, and a 15-year search for the truth. In his book, Mr. James presents vivid accounts of that night through the eyes of survivors. He also presents evidence not seen to date, some of it exculpatory to those charged, was not presented to the grand jury. He also presents, for the first time, interviews with the principal players surrounding the tragedy. One of his goals in examining this horror was to help us determine the station nightclub fire, crime or accident. Scott James joins us now on Murder Most Foul. This is the story of the Station Nightclub in West Warwick, Rhode Island. Uh, and in, on February 20th, 2003, the uh, rock band Great White set off fireworks as part of its show uh, at this small roadside club. And uh, it ignited this foam that was on the walls of the nightclub. And the building became an inferno in a matter of seconds. And 100 people were dead as a result of that. Um, so it's really one of the deadliest uh, crimes in the United States history. It's the uh, deadliest rock concert ever in the nation's history. It's also a really the deadliest uh, single building fire in modern American history since we've had modern building codes. But despite all of that, there were never any trials, not a criminal trial and not a civil trial. And so none of the government's evidence against those who were accused was actually laid out in front of a jury, laid out in open court, be vetted, with witnesses cross-examined. And as a result, there have been unanswered questions. Some of the central questions about this case have remained unanswered for all of these years. So the book uh, follows uh, a few people. I uh, selected few to rep represent the many. 
Um, as I said, there were 100 people killed, hundreds injured, thousands of lives impacted. So uh, the people who are the central figures of the book, I get to follow them from before, during, and after. Uh, and these are not random people. The people who I focus on uh, and tell the story through their lens are people who are key to understanding this tragedy and what happened. And they are literally in the room as certain events unfold for the reader that are really important for you to understand to kind of piece this all together. Jim, part of the reason we know so much about this tragedy is because of what I'll call one of the first of many, many cruel twists in this tragedy, which is that um, it was caught on tape. So in 2020, we're very used to the idea of, of events being caught on video. But in 2003, the iPhone had not even been invented. There were no smartphones. So it was extremely rare for uh, any incident to be caught on video. But in particular, this one, what was interesting was inside the nightclub was a local TV news uh, photographer, and he was there working on a story, a story ironically about public venue safety. And he was shooting what's called B-roll, since it's gonna be generic video that's gonna go in a story that's gonna air at a later date. So he is rolling his uh, tape when the band comes on the stage, when the band lights off its fireworks, and when the fireworks ignite the walls and the place becomes an inferno. So we see, second by second, and that's why I can tell you today what happened second by second. So for the first 30 seconds, people don't really move because they see the flames, they see the columns of fire, and I think some of them, not all of them, but many of them thought this was simply part of the show. Uh, let's face it, in, in modern society, we really don't interact with open flames very often. We see fires when they're in a fireplace in a nice luxury hotel lobby. Uh, we don't cook with fire. We don't heat with fire. We've kind of lost our fear of fire. So the awful uh, tragedy of this is that the building becomes pretty much um, a death zone at about the 90 second mark. At 90 seconds, the heat inside the building has gone to what a, a level that's called a flashover. And a flashover is when a, a, a fire in a room becomes a room on fire. And basically the temperatures in that building got to about 1400 degrees in a matter of seconds. So if you were inside that building after 90 seconds, it was very unlikely that you would survive. So that's what we know, and it's extreme, one of the most documented uh, fires in the history of the United States. In fact, this fire, because of that video, is taught to almost everyone who wants to become a firefighter or a fire investigator. It is uh, one of the odd legacies of this terrible uh, tragedy is that uh, that video is used for training and has probably saved many, many, many lives. And another one of the uh, twists, as you call it, is that uh, the videographer was shooting this video for a story that was going to be produced by uh, Jeffrey Dedarian, a reporter for Channel 12. And um, again, oddly, also one of the owners of the station nightclub, and he was actually on duty that night. 
So Jeffrey, as part of his decision to move back to uh, be in Rhode Island from the Providence, uh, from the Boston market. So when he was in Boston, he was a hotshot reporter and they would dispatch him to wherever in the United States, it was a major story to be covered. So he went to Columbine when they had the shootings. He went to New York when it was 9-11. So it was kind of a different role as a reporter working out of a major market TV station, especially Channel 7, which as you probably know, is a very good station, very well regarded, has lots of resources. So he would have to leave town at a moment's notice. Well, he had two young twin sons, four years old, and he wanted to spend more time with them, more time with his family. And so the move to Providence, to this, uh, what might be a step down in some people's minds in terms of the media is concerned from Boston to Providence was something he did in part to be with his family. The nightclub was also part of that. He was looking for a way to have an income beyond being in television news, which he didn't see as particularly stable. And as we know, journalism isn't a very stable career. Uh, so he was the one who approached his brother, Michael, who is a local businessman and said, can, is there something we can do together? And they looked at a, various ventures. They, I think they tried to buy a laundry business and they didn't, that fell through. And so then this came up and they decided they would do it. And that was in about 2000 was when they bought uh, the nightclub business. Now, one of the misconceptions about this story was that they owned the building. The building was not owned by them, it was owned by someone else. Uh, they owned the nightclub business, so they were renters of the building. They did not own the building. So they buy this business, and uh, as you said, the rock and roll business is not necessarily all that lucrative, uh, which they found out over time. I think they said uh, out of the course of all the, the, the years that they owned it, they might have had a couple of times when they got close to selling out. Uh, it was one of those things uh, that was misreported after the fire that somehow every night the place was jam-packed with screaming crowds and that was just not the truth. Most of the time the place was had barely enough regulars sitting at the bar to sustain it. Uh, in fact, most months I think they had to dip into their own pockets to pay to make sure the bills were covered because there was so little revenue coming into the place. Uh, Michael is in Florida on vacation. He's about to get on a cruise ship with his uh, girlfriend and uh, their kids. And Jeffrey is the person who is uh, manning the club. They would actually take turns about who was going to be kind of the designated grown-up on at the club at any given night. So this happened to be Jeffrey's turn. He came, he'd worked all day shooting stories, covering the news, and then he went home and changed from his news uniform of, you know, the, the suit and tie to get into his rock and roll uh, co-owner of a nightclub uh, uniform, which was kind of a denim shirt uh, in, in, with embroidered the uh, name of the night, uh, the club on it, the station. Um, I should point out that uh, to my listeners that you had unusual um, access to uh, Michael and Jeffrey Jadarian when you wrote this book. And the accounts of those interviews are such that don't appear in, in other books or documentaries that it was, you know, a relationship between uh, you and them. Talking to the Darians after all these years, first of all, I should point out that they've never told their story. They never shared their version of events uh, until now, until this book. And we can talk about why that was, why they had been silent for all these years. Because uh, that's important for people to know. Because remember, we talked about that there were so many unanswered questions. The reason that there were so many unanswered questions is that several people who were central figures to this felt that they had been muzzled or silenced 
Uh, and a lot of those people came forward and spoke for the very first time. We talked about Brian Butler, the photographer. He had never told his version of events. A guy named Barry Warner, who sold the brothers the foam, which turns out to be uh, highly flammable. Uh, but in fact, the brothers uh, actually provided me with a basically a receipt that shows that they ordered sound foam, which is supposed to by law be flame resistant, flame retardant. So a lot of uh, uh, different people have come forward to share information that was not really made available to the public. But there's also people who were there that night and saw what happened inside that club. Uh, their memories are also impacted by, you know, post-traumatic stress disorder. Uh, for Jeffrey, uh, first of all, even though Jeffrey and I had worked together more than 25 years ago, uh, he was not going to speak to any reporters. He pretty much hated the media uh, because he felt that they were uh, really demonized, that they didn't get a fair shot, they didn't have their side of the story told at the time. So it took some convincing to get Jeffrey even to agree to speak to me at all and then to introduce me to his brother and their families. But then there was this additional step was trying to get Jeffrey to remember the events of that night. He was inside the club. He saw what happened with his own eyes. But it doesn't mean that his brain really allows him to revisit certain moments. I think a lot of that we were able to explore, but I will tell you, um, some of it is still a, a black uh, wall that's not really penetrable. Uh, and he has never been back to the scene of the fire um, ever since that night, since he left uh, the, the day after he has never returned. It's too painful for him. He also realizes that because he's a controversial figure to some of the people connected to this uh, tragedy that he doesn't want to go there and be seen there if somebody is at the memorial, there's a memorial there now grieving a loved one. He doesn't want to intrude on them and possibly cause, cause them to be upset. But yeah, I mean, his, his, he remembered these words came up, you know, this isn't good, this isn't good. I think at another point, he was like, you know, I, I can't fix this. These things come into his head, these memories of what he was thinking at the time. But they're little bursts of memories and images. Uh, really, there's not a, for him, the capture of what happened in those 90 seconds is not nearly as clear as the capture on Brian Butler's video. It was certainly in the media termed a, a fire trap. Yes. And that was based on, and you can cover these as you will, the foam, the occupancy, which is a debate, yep. the exits, good, bad, or indifferent, right. swinging doors, no swinging doors, and the big problem, of course, and it wasn't anybody's fault. There were no sprinklers. They right. were grandfathered, and they didn't have to have them. So why don't you talk a little bit about the building? Well, I think that the uh, um, there's so much of this that we look at now, made all these years later, and say, you know, well, look back at these people and judge them and say, you know, uh, why didn't you do this? Why didn't you do that? Uh, the fact is we know things now that people did not know for a long time. It was days until they really understood that the foam was one of the main culprits here. They didn't really understand immediately why this fire went up the way it did. If this had been a normal fire without that foam, probably everyone would have, would have been able to get out. Uh, obviously, the building uh, didn't have sprinklers. It should have had sprinklers. Sprinklers are a technology that dates back to the 1800s. There's no reason why they shouldn't be, but it wasn't required by law. And so that happened. Um, I, the building is a, a complicated thing because um, uh, one of the things that I discovered going through the um, grand jury transcripts. So one of the things that also gives us insight into this case after all these years, it wasn't known at the time that 
the fire happened uh, was that there, a lot of people uh, testified um, in detail and their information wouldn't become public until frankly years later after the criminal cases were all uh, settled. Um, so let's talk about something like the exits. That's a really good thing to talk about because it goes to what we were discussing before about how that people stood there and watched the fire and they didn't move for 30 seconds. So I think I said that, you know, at about the 90 second mark was when was a moment of life and death. So now we're down to one minute and everybody's going to get out in about one minute. Well, our natural instinct is to go back the way we came in. That's I think part of our lizard brain just says, okay, we know that's the way we came in. So that's the way we're going to go out. So you immediately have people all turn towards this one uh, exit. But in fact, there were four exits. So there was an exit near the stage door. There's a lot of controversy about that exit because it was a, a, a door that had been covered in foam. It was not the right type of door, the way it swung. Uh, it was kept closed, vigilantly kept closed during performances in order to prevent sound from getting out to the neighborhood because the neighbors had complained bitterly about the disruptions and nuisance factor of the nightclub uh, when the sound was not secured. So there was actually a person assigned to be at that door to make sure it stayed closed during the performances. So uh, the fire starts, and again, people don't immediately react to it, to exit. Uh, some people uh, have reported uh, that they went to that door, the, the stage door. People who were concerned and said, I want to get out of here. And the guy's like, I, I can't, you know, I'm not opening this door. Uh, people thought it was because it was a VIP door only for um, celebrities. But the truth was, the, guy, the reason the guy was stationed there was to keep the sound enclosed. It had nothing to do with VIPs. But when they do determine that there is a fire and people realize what's going on, the band gets out that door and a couple others get out that door. But then that's where the fire started. So according to a federal recreation of the fire in a lab done many, many years, uh, done years later, the temperature at that spot, right at that door, gets to 1400 degrees in a matter of seconds. The reason more people didn't go to that exit is because you could not go by it. As a human being, you could not uh, approach something uh, so uh, hot. Two other exits. One is uh, near the bar, that's uh, open and people do get out of that. And then there's one that's through the kitchen. Well, prior to the Dedarians buying the nightclub business, there was an inspection uh, and the fire inspector decided that that fourth exit uh, was not, uh, because it went through a kitchen, it was not kosher. And so he ordered the removal of all the exit signs that said that that was a way to leave the building. You actually have, you know, in the aftermath, uh, this is very gruesome to talk about, but they mapped where people died. And there were several people who died right near that exit, but they would not have known that it was even there. And in fact, club employees, they used that exit. They went right out through the kitchen and that's how they survived because they knew it existed. So now you're basically down to two exits. One is a bottleneck where all the people have gone who are retracing their steps. And the other one is working, but it's not enough people know that it's there. Plus this black smoke uh, enters the room. People think that the lights went out or the emergency exit signs didn't work. The truth is, and we see this in the lab creation by the feds, this black smoke covers everything in a matter of seconds so that it becomes pitch black dark. But the fact is, this, actually, it's not even smoke. It's superheated particles that are actually deadly to, to inhale, uh, honestly, at that point. So, so you just have all of these things that happen at once. It kind of called us the, uh, 
you know, the uh, perfect storm of fires because everything went wrong simultaneously. This confusion over the exits, where the fire started blocking one, everybody jammed into the other. And, uh, and then the, the fact that one of the exits was effectively eliminated. Now under fire codes, each of those doors were rated to allow 150 people per minute to escape the building. So that's 600 people in theory could have got out in that one minute, but that's not the reality of what happened. And part of that is because the fire moved so quickly. So the fireworks, there'd be no fire. Yes, uh, it's not legal to use fireworks. Uh, and Rhode Island actually has pretty strict laws about fireworks. Um, and there was a question about whether or not the band had permission to use fireworks. So the band has said that they did, uh, the nightclub, uh, owners, business owners said they did not. And so what's really interesting about this is that within 24 hours of the fire, what we would call the first news cycle. The New York Times, after the band makes this claim that they had permission to do this, uh, the New York Times uh, traces the band's recent gigs and goes to all of these different clubs all over the country and says, you know, did this band appeared there? Did they let off fireworks and did they have permission to do so? And one after another after another said the same story, which was they did light off fireworks and they did not have permission. Some even said they explicitly told them they could not do it and they did it anyway. Others said they didn't ask and they were surprised as anybody else when it started. Most famously was the, the Stone Pony, which is a club in Asbury Park, New Jersey, famous for the start of, of Bruce Springsteen. That owner was so angry when he saw this because the same thing had happened at his club and he was so angry that it happened to him and he saw what happened in Rhode Island and he saw that people were killed. He uh, went and made public the contracts that he had with Great White uh, for the performance, even down to the writer, you know, that, that the details about like how many bags of potato chips that they had to have in the dressing room. So in all of these, this paperwork between uh, Great White and their representatives and the Stone Pony in Asbury Park, uh, there was no mention of fireworks. And yet there were fireworks. And, you know, this is show business. If you're gonna provide something as part of the show, you're gonna bill for it. And so there's none of that there. So immediately there are doubts, um, at least at the New York Times, uh, reporting doubts about the band's credibility on this topic. But that wasn't necessarily a storyline that was picked up by the media in Rhode Island, at least not right away. And aside from the uh, illegal fireworks, uh, another big issue uh, in the tragedy was uh, the foam. We have both a, the, the gentleman or the company that sold it and that, that Mr. Warner. And then we have uh, Dennis Rocky LaRoque, uh, who tells different stories about uh, inspecting before the fire. So tell us about a little bit about... Um, the involvement in, uh, in this with Warner and LaRoque? Well, uh, Barry Warner was a neighbor of the nightclub. Couldn't have lived closer, to be honest. When you go there to Barry's house, he's right over, overseas the site of where the nightclub was. Uh, and he speaks for the first time and shares his story. And it really is interesting how, like, how part of it is about small town politics. Uh, this was, uh, I had been to this club when it was before the tragedy. And when I walked in, I immediately recognized it as an old uh, Papa Brillo's. And those of us who grew up there remember this kind of small Italian chain uh, of restaurants. 
uh, they were distinct because they had this solarium-ish type window things you would sit in. And, and uh, when I walked in, I thought this was an old Papa Villas. And in fact, it was. So when it was a restaurant, which is when uh, Barry Warner moved into the neighborhood, it was not a problem. And then kind of going through the back doors for permits, next thing you know, it was going to be uh, some sort of club. And uh, it was really turned out to be a live rock and roll club, which really woke up the neighbors one night. And that went on for years. And there were dozens and dozens and dozens of bitter complaints filed about the noise coming from the club. And in fact, when the Tadarians finally get around to uh, wanting to buy this business, they're kind of told up front, like, you are not going to last very long. We're not going to uh, issue your entertainment permits unless you finally come to terms with the sound and the nuisance of that club. It was basically an existential threat. You will either fix the sound problems, the noise complaints, or we will put you out of business. So they go in search of a solution and they look at several of them and they go around and talk to the neighbors to see, you know, what they can do on their end. One of the the things they offered uh, Barry Warner and the immediate neighbors was, can we buy you air conditioning for your home so you can sleep with your windows shut? And maybe that will help abate some of the noise problem. So they were looking at this from all different angles and then they meet with Barry Warner and it turns out that he works for a foam company. So according to Barry Warner, they talked about many different solutions to the sound problems. Uh, and he did mention that foam was something he sold and that could be a possible solution. Uh, now later, the Tadarians put in an order for foam, and you can read this in the book where they ask for sound foam, and that's their, their fax that they send over to the company, America Foam, and, uh, and it gets processed, and the deal is made, and the foam gets sent out, and it gets installed, but instead of getting sound foam, instead somewhere along the line, a mistake is made, and instead they are delivered packing foam, like you would use for you know, shipping things, and that is not flame retardant. So now we get into, well, why wasn't this caught by the inspector? Because in a lot of jurisdictions, when public buildings put up something, a curtain or, or anything that's uh, possibly flammable, part of the inspection is that you're supposed to either provide the inspector with receipt that shows, you know, here's what the materials are, this is certified by this company that is made of this material, and lacking that, they will actually take a little piece of, a little cut a little piece of the curtain, or, uh, or in this case, the foam, bring it out to the parking lot and do a fire test. They'll try to light it on fire and they will determine right there whether it's flammable or not. And we've seen this, I've seen stories in places like Miami, which has a very big club scene, they're very strict about this. Nothing gets put in uh, unless it's verified that it is flame retardant or flame proof. Uh, well, that didn't happen in the, with the station nightclub. And in fact, it had been in, uh, inspected and given the all okay multiple times over the years. And as recently as just a few weeks before the actual fire. Um, and it was never even noticed uh, by the uh, inspector that there was foam on the walls and it certainly was never tested. You know, there's the Darians when they put the foam on the walls, it kind of immediately abated the problem of the noise complaints. And in fact, they went to a town council meeting and they talked about how that they had put foam on the walls and they were congratulated for being a good business and finally solving the problem with that, that uh, troublesome building. Well, after the fire happened, the audio recording of that town meeting was, well, it disappeared. Uh, so, but people did remember it and people did say they remember the meeting and they remember those things happening. But the actual documentation that showed that they had been upfront and said this is what they did 
uh, that it was uh, that all has uh, evaporated, disappeared. So the day after the fire, um, the newly elected governor, Donald Kachiri, and the newly elected attorney general, Patrick Lynch, of course, uh, visit um, the site of the of the Station Nightclub fire uh, with plenty of cameras and microwave trucks there to uh, to listen to what they've got to say. They go to the scene of this horrific um, uh, tragedy and uh, they know before the public knows how many people are dead. The, the scope of it is it's kind of mind boggling. Uh, I think that any state, even a large state, would have been overwhelmed by the task at hand. Uh, you know, we don't remember, and I will just remind people, that uh, it took a long time just to identify the people who died. Think of how agonizing this is. This is what this state went through. We didn't know if you even lost a loved one in the fire for days and days and days, and it came down to asking for DNA samples and dental records. This is really brutal, gruesome stuff that the state has to deal with. At the same time, they have to determine whether or not this is a crime or an accident. Uh, so that's kind of their first task. Unfortunately, before they even start their investigation, one of the chief law enforcement people in the area, the police chief of the town of West Warwick, decides to give an interview to the Associated Press and say that the nightclub uh, owners, uh, Jeffrey and Michael Dadarian, are, quote, most definitely will be indicted. So this is before any investigation is done. We don't even know about foam or anything at that point. Nothing has been figured out. We still don't even know how many people are dead. We certainly don't know who they are. And already he's made this pronouncement and it goes all over the country. It's picked up by Fox News. And until that moment, uh, the Darians have been cooperating with the investigation. Jeffrey Darian has sat down for two lengthy interviews to tell everything he knew, because he was, as you can imagine, uh, like everyone wants to know what in the world happened. You know, buildings aren't supposed to go up like a torch like that. Um, and so, uh, and Michael, even though he was out of town, he was on uh, in Florida, he had uh, did an interview with the police uh, by phone and told them what he knew. But then after this pronouncement was made, that basically that they had already pronounced them guilty, uh, the government, they their lawyer naturally said, look, you're not talking to those people anymore. So that cut off an entire avenue of information about this case that I really think stymied the investigation and ultimately uh, is why people didn't know the full set of facts in, until today. At the same time, Patrick Lynch, who's been on the job just a matter of weeks, he's a brand new attorney general, he is, he is put into this situation where he has to deal with possibly um, the biggest criminal case the state has ever seen. And so how he approaches it is interesting and actually, unfortunately, for him raises questions about whether he was involved also in a rush to judgment similar to what the local police chief did. In other words, basically decided he was guilty before completing the investigation. He sends out his staff immediately to do uh, a, an analysis. He refers to this as the document, and he speaks very proudly of this after all these years. The document became the guiding uh, uh, rule for this investigation, prosecution, and, and the in the uh, settlements. So the document, the document uh, was about 20 pages long and his staff went out and investigated other big fatal fires from around the country and from around the world. And they basically determined in each of those cases, who was it who was indicted? Who was it 
who was convicted and how much time did that person spend in prison. And so that's kind of how they made the determination about who to go after. It wasn't basically where are the facts in this case and where do they lead us? It's like, historically, who can we get? Who, who, who make, takes the fall for situations like this? And now let's go after those people. And you can see it from the grand jury, which starts just days after the fire, where they start presenting evidence and everything, everything is geared towards only prosecuting and indicting uh, the club owners and the guy who actually set off the fireworks, the tour manager, this kind of roadie guy named Dan Beakley. So any other questions that are raised before that grand jury are kind of like dismissed. And even when the grand jurors themselves start asking really good questions like, well, wait a minute, what about this fire investigator? It wasn't his job to make sure that building was safe and he didn't do his job and people are dead. And the prosecutors are put in this odd situation where they have to explain to the grand jurors that according to them, and not everybody agrees with this, according to them, it's not a crime in Rhode Island to not do your job as a government worker, even if not doing your job ends up meaning that people are killed. And so they're just, some of the grand jurors are incredulous about this. And they ask really good questions and they push back and they ask about, well, what about this, the band's lead singer? What about him? What, wait a minute, what about this foam company that seems to have, have screwed up on that? What about, and they're told, no, 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 you, none of that. You can't indict any of those people. You can only indict these three people who we're telling you to indict. And so at some point, you know, some of the people are like, well, what, is there any other evidence, any other evidence that would point to a different uh, you know, theory of this uh, crime, and and they don't share with them some of the things that they know. Now, what the prosecution has in their hands at that point is they have that order form from the Dedarians to the phone company. Now, the Dedarians don't have it because their building burned down. They had none of those records. The only place where that record would exist would have been at the phone company, which of course the government had the access to go and obtain through search warrants, etc. But the Darians didn't have that. In fact, that was kept from them for years, from the, even from their own defense attorneys. And it was kept from the grand jury as they were considering who to indict. Information about the foam company. There was an insider, a whistleblower, who had sent this long fax to the Boston Globe and to the attorney general's office and basically said, like, here's what was really going on in that place. And it was not well managed. And they were really slipshod with things like warning people that what they were buying was dangerous. Uh, well, that was never shared with the grand jury. And in fact, it would come out later and it was a uh, part of a, some legal maneuverings that basically in the state of Rhode Island, it is not against the law to withhold from a grand jury what's called exculpatory evidence. Basically evidence that might show that someone is in fact innocent, you don't have to share with, uh, with the grand jury. So that goes to the whole thing that people have said for years, and it's true, and when it comes to grand jury, prosecutors could indict a ham sandwich. Ham sandwich. And uh, they were going to, the grand jury was gonna do the bidding of these prosecutors. In this particular case, you know, early on, when I decided I would take a look at this and kind of reopen this case, something came to my attention uh, that really kind of drove me to, to continue. And that was when I learned that there had been three mock trials uh, that the public had never learned about and don't, have, don't know about until now in this book. And in each of the, the mock trials, uh, the Darians were not convicted.
So for me, looking at this from an outsider saying, wait a minute, all this preponderance of evidence that I've read in all the newspapers and I've seen on TV, it sure seems like, you know, they're, they're guilty of something, right? Uh, but when these three different mock trials happen and they're not convicted, that raises a question in my head. Well, what in the world did they have access to? What information did they know that the public didn't know that made them come to a completely different conclusion than what anyone else would think. And Frank, what most people think today in Rhode Island, they just think, you know, they're guilty uh, and that's it. So, um, so yeah, I think that there was enormous pressure on them to, to take a plea bargain for many different reasons. Um, so even though there were these mock trials that were done that showed that the, case, the state's case was not all that the public had been led to believe, at the same time, the Tadarians also commissioned some uh, surveys of public opinion. And what they discovered was that because there was so much anger about what happened, especially with regard to the plea bargain of Daniel Beakley, you mentioned him, the tour manager, the roadie guy. Now, he was the one who actually set off the bomb that made this place. So he was pretty, for him, it was more of an open shut case that he had broken the law and had what he had done had caught, led to these people being killed. He had no intention, by the way. There's no intent by anyone in any of this. And I want to be clear about that to hurt anyone. That is not what happened. And oftentimes in criminal law, intent is a way, is, has, plays a big role in a conviction. So already there's no intent. And we should point out that there's no way that Daniel Beakley knew that the walls of that uh, nightclub were lined in this, you know, uh, explosive, uh, dangerous foam. So, uh, but he did take a plea bargain and he was sentenced to basically serve about 18 months. And this made people so angry. They felt like 18 months for 100 deaths, what does that come out to? So, and there were the proceedings when he was sentenced, uh, which were carried live nationwide on television, are just so intense and so emotional. You can just see how torn apart we are. I should also point out that Rhode Island law did not allow for anyone, anyone at all, to be held accountable uh, for the people who were injured. It wasn't, the law wasn't written in a way that allowed that. So already you've got hundreds of people who are, who are very seriously hurt, whose lives are destroyed. Uh, thousands of families, uh, ripple effect, are impacted by this. And they're told by the state, well, we can't do anything for any of you. We can only litigate on the deaths. And then the guy gets 18 months for 100 people being killed. So now up next at bat are the Dedarians in the legal system. And so there's enormous pressure for them to take a plea bargain, even though uh, they have evidence to the contrary, even though the mock trials say that, you know, an impartial jury would find them not guilty. But here's the thing, I don't think they were gonna get an impartial jury and they didn't think so either because they had done some surveys of public opinion and it showed that people in the state of Rhode Island said they would still convict them even if evidence was produced that showed they were innocent. So that was the mindset. So it's a fairly risky thing. People can judge and say, well, I would never ever you know, confess or plead to something I didn't do. Um, but you know what? What are you gonna do in those, facing those odds? On one side of the ledger is evidence to the contrary of what the, the government is saying, and you have these mock trials that show that an impartial jury is, is not gonna convict. Uh, but on the other side is people saying, we're going to convict you no matter what. So, um, so they strike a plea. And the plea is one of the fascinating parts, I think, of this story. And I go into it quite a bit in the, in the book because behind the scenes, they called it um, uh, buy one, set one free. That was kind of the lingo that was used to describe the deal that was ultimately made. And that was that there were two brothers. We're going to convict them both. 
but that one has to serve time in prison and the other won't. And part of the reason that this was advocated for by the defense was that one brother who would stay out would continue to try to work and support the family so they were not completely, you know, they have children, both, both of the men had children who need to be taken care of and, and loved ones. Uh, and so that one would support the family while the other did the time. But in a really kind of bizarre twist, uh, the government lets, lets the brothers decide which one is going to go to prison. So there's a scene where they're in a Dunkin' Donuts and people have asked me, why are they in a Dunkin' Donuts? They're in a Dunkin' Donuts because they wanted to get out of the house or from the kids, they didn't want their small children to overhear these conversations. So they are with their wives and they are discussing which one is better suited to do the prison time. And this goes on for quite a while and it's like, you'll read it in the book, you can see the scene unfold before your eyes. Um, and they make the wrong decision. They decide who's the better one to go to prison based on a variety of factors. And in the end, uh, it's the wrong decision. The wrong one goes, he loses his mind in prison. Uh, the public is, is so still angry because of this deal that's made. They didn't want to see any deal for the brothers whatsoever. They're thinking, you know, we'll, we'll make the pain stop for everyone by putting an end to all of this. It only aggravated the pain even more. So, uh, Things didn't exactly turn out how they planned based on, on all that they had uh, really carefully uh, deliberated on. So in both instances um, of uh, Dan Beakley and of the Dedarians, each of them were pleading uh, guilty to a misdemeanor that only had one aspect of the case uh, at its center, correct? Interestingly, in the, for the Dedarians, it was the foam. So the foam that I'm telling you now, you can see the paperwork on today that was withheld from the grand jury and even withheld from the defendants that raises questions about their culpability in the foam, but it was the foam that they, uh, was the underlying misdemeanor that, that was tied to this plea, which, you know, that's the uh, irony is that um, you have one of the brothers goes to prison knowing that uh, when you, you know, get down to the particulars of it, this is this, this that he pleaded to is something he actually didn't do. Now, look, there's a bigger question about whether or not there's just, you know, reckless behavior, reckless disregard, uh, that, you know, the fact that they owned this nightclub uh, made them guilty automatically. And I would say this, there's a difference between a kind of legal criminal guilt and guilt. Um, one of the things that comes through in talking to uh, the brothers after all these years is the unbelievable guilt that they live with every single day of their lives. They never shirk the responsibility. They still play in their heads the what ifs. What if we never bought that business? What if we never built, you know, booked that band? What if we had disagreed with the experts and the fire codes and said, damn it, you know, we're gonna make we're gonna make that landlord put in sprinklers anyway. It's suggested to them that they should have been responsible for having memorized all five thousand pages of the building codes of the state of Rhode Island, uh, and that it, failure to do so made them reckless uh, business owners. I mean, things like that. So the what ifs never leave them. They still still feel a tremendous uh, sense of guilt and responsibility uh, for what happened, uh, and they play this out in their heads every single day of their lives. But there's a difference between feeling responsible uh, and feeling guilty uh, and being criminally guilty.
uh, need to point out to my listeners is that um, in your book, uh, Trial by Fire, you do not ignore the victims. There's a big portion of the book uh, interspersed with uh, facts and legal opinions, uh, stories of victims, victims who survived, um, victims who lost loved ones, uh, very poignant stories that you got directly uh, from the surviving victims. So those are, are not to be um, dismissed, and they are a big part of the book. Well, I think that one of the things that uh, really comes through in, in following these uh, people before, during, after the fire is how that they're really failed by institutions uh, that we think are going to be there to either protect us or be there to kind of pick us up uh, if there's been a disaster like this. And none of that really happens for these people. Uh, I think, um, you know, obviously there was, we talked about already, there was a failure to have proper, uh, you know, the place of the death trap. It shouldn't have been a death trap. I mean, we, we learned these lessons in the Beverly Hills Supper Club and the, and, and the uh, you know, um, other terrible, terrible fires. Uh, so there's, there's no reason for any of this to happen. So we're failed by the codes, we're failed by the inspectors, and then the fire happens, uh, and afterward, they're failed in the recovery. I mean, for a while there, there's an enormous effort to raise money to help people get through some of their immediate costs, burying their loved ones, some of the immediate uh, health bills. But these are, this isn't over in three months. Uh, this is, goes on for years and years and years. And uh, one of the things the state asked for was a FEMA disaster uh, recognition and relief. Uh, and in fact, there was a precedent just a, a few years earlier, there'd been a terrible fire in Worcester where four firefighters died in a warehouse and FEMA stepped in there and they came up with money to help support those families uh, and those were people in need. But when it came to this in Rhode Island, the answer was no. And I do think part of this plays a role, and we talked about this a little bit earlier, and I'll just bring it back, that these were working class, regular folks, and these are, you know, they're rockers. They got tattoos. They like to party. Um, this is not who Americans traditionally raise money on behalf of. These are not children with cancer. These are not first responders, people like that. And so they're not part of this, this uh, class that, the kind of the elite people would raise money for. And so very quickly, uh, that initial money runs out. There's actually quite a bit left in the till and it gets put into a, a this shows how out of touch people were, it gets put into a, a future college scholarship fund. So this is people who needed their bills paid today. They were losing their homes, they were losing their cars. Some of the people kicked out on the street with their belongings because they were so destitute. Uh, then again, the um, cavalry arrives in the uh, form of lawyers and the 1-800-CASH-NOW companies uh, descend upon the victims and are there uh, hopefully not to make them victims again, but in some cases, that's not true. There are lawsuits, civil lawsuits, uh, but they take years and years and years, several years to work out when they finally do. Uh, they end up getting a settlement in total of $176 million, which sounds like an astonishing amount of money, except $59 million of that is pocketed by the attorneys. Controversially, I mean, as people are, you know, giving $5 who don't have $5 to help these poor people, um, the uh, lawyers take their full fee. Um, you know, and I've heard criticism from 
people very high up in the state who, who just uh, hate these people, the lawyers, because they, they could have taken less. But anyway, they took what they were entitled to, and the rest is left to be divided up. But before we even get there, um, people have preyed upon the people who were going to get settlements. Uh, kind of lenders have approached them and said, look, I'll give you money now if you give me your settlement later. So these deals are struck behind the scenes with these poor people who are preyed upon because they need money now because they got to pay their bills now. They're getting kicked out of the house now. And so by the time the settlement money arrives, some of these people end up getting pennies on the dollar. Pennies on the dollar when they might have a, a lifetime of injuries to deal with and they are exploited. Well, Scott, um, I think we have to leave it right there. Uh, I have this feeling that the Zoom people are going to throw me off pretty soon. I want to thank you again for joining me today on Murder Most Foul. Um, we could talk uh, uh, hours and hours, but I think it's better for folks to get the book. Uh, I don't think I can do it justice with my questions. So please pick up the book. It's Trial by Fire by Scott James. You can find Scott James on Facebook. You can order the book on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or pick it up at your local library. But before I let you go, um, I'd like to turn it over to you for a few final thoughts on the victims of the Station Nightclub Fire. What forms the core of this book are these unbelievable personal intimate accounts. Uh, some people, it's interesting, I'm, uh, there's a scene with Governor Kacheri where uh, we're in his bedroom. Never thought I'd write a bedroom scene with Governor Kacheri. And he's watching the local news. Um, this is sometime after the fire. Remember, it took a long time to, to identify the victims of the fire. And of course, he is, you know, putting the brave face on because he is in charge of, of the state and it's in a terrible, dire emergency. And he sees on the late local news a photograph of one of the victims and he realizes for the first time he knew this person. So this wasn't just a tragedy that he was now the, the commander-in-chief of uh, handling and that was on his plate to, to somehow make right. He had a personal connection, a young woman who was uh, friends with his children. They would play together, the families vacation together. He knew this woman. And until that moment, he never knew that he too, like so many people in the state of Rhode Island, had lost somebody who he personally had a, a connection with in that tragedy. So that type of intimate memories, those type of fly on the wall perspective you get on things, I think that's the core of the book. All that we've talked about today with reopening the case and looking at the, the evidence in different ways and laying it all out so people can make their own decisions now based on having more of the evidence than they were given at the time for either the government or the media. Honestly, that all is around the edges of the story. The core part of the story are these uh, people and their stories and what they went through. And some of them are amazing. In closing, I'd like to thank my listeners for tuning in. I hope you'll come back again, and I hope you'll tell your friends about Murder Most Foul. In the meantime, stay safe. Until next time.